Brooke Weber here. Just a quick note that the content in the following episode mentions gender-based violence, rape, and femicide, so feel free to not listen if this discussion might cause harm, and this episode is probably not appropriate for younger listeners. If you have questions, comments, concerns, feel free to email me at brookeoffice at gmail.com. That is Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E, office, and follow us on LensFuzz on Twitter. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Thank you for listening to Lens Fuzz, a podcast where we comment on issues where the fuzz should have been involved, should not have been involved, or, you know, it's just a little fuzzy. I'm so excited because I have in the Lens Fuzz studio, aka my guest room, very hot guest room, uh, Sabrina Gilman Basave, who I've always had a lot of respect for as a lifelong activist and a good friend. So, thank you so much for being here with me, Sabrina. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me in your hot, hot bedroom. It's very (laughs) hot. No fans allowed. Uh, So we've been friends for a while, right? But we originally met in Guatemala when you and your mom joined Rita, who I think you guys know, you guys know her a lot better, who was a professor at Shoreline Community College on that trip. So just curious, since that was our first time meeting, like, what do you remember from that trip or what stood out to you? Yeah. So we met almost two decades ago to, you know, kind of age us, I suppose. Um, Yeah, in Guatemala. And I think some of the things that stood out to me when we were there, um, probably like the sociopolitical history in Guatemala, we spent a lot of time learning about that, about the disappearances, about the massacres, um, about the U.S. government involvement with destabilizing the country and destabilizing a lot of countries in Central America to further U.S. interests. And um, so I think that the the whole experience there was definitely centered around, you know, trying to help people improve their Spanish, have um, opportunities to have cultural exchanges with families, but then also learn about some of the real hard history that um, exists there. Uh, as a result of our, as like American citizens, like our history and our um, involvement in the country. No, that's so true. I, it's funny because I didn't really know about the civil wars that went on in the 80s. And then after that trip, it definitely enlightened my eyes to even like why we have gangs in like California and like that kind of stuff. But the funny thing that the only thing that really stood out for me or the most thing that was the host families... <laughs> I know you were going to talk about this, but, like, my host family, I bought them, like, a a gift, which was smoked salmon. I'm sure you, like, have a story about this later, but, like, um, and one night I got really hungry, so I refused to eat dinner with them because my Spanish <laughs> was so bad, so I would avoid dinner because they had, like, a German girl that I was also living with. Her Spanish was, like, perfect, <laughs> and so I'd always try to, like, avoid dinners and stuff with them. So I got hungry and I broke into their gift and I started like eating the salmon that was in there. And then the next day the the maid kept going around saying, why does it smell like fish? And she was like obviously <laughs> blaming me. But anyways, that was like what stood out me. But like for sure, I learned a little bit about a little bit of Spanish and definitely more about um, what happened in those countries and our involvement. So, uh, but... Um, eventually fate would take its course and we would run into each other at Western and become roommates, activists, and good friends. And we got in some trouble together there and lived together for a while. So any memories from that? Lots of memories. Um, some really funny ones, some really cool ones. I remember that 
you were one of my first friends to volunteer with the Migrant Youth Leadership Conference that we put on every year when I was part of a club called Mecha, the Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Asan in um, Bellingham, Washington. And so that was exciting that you got to be part of that experience and um, support migrant youth uh, in the Whatcom County and kind of like Northern Washington area. Um, you know, you mentioned salmon. I remember when your father brought us a bunch of smoked salmon that he had fished and smoked for us. And so we put it all in the freezer and I don't remember if like this weird thing was because of you or me or us, but we did have a weird thing where we would like eat like only popcorn one week or <laughs> only so with your hot sauce. Remember that? Yes. I remember the hot popcorn or hot sauce. Or only miso soup. We were or... college students. Yes, we were. Oh, and so one of those weeks was only salmon. So I remember <laughs> we ate all the smoked salmon before we went out to the bars. We had a great time. We came back. We were definitely um, not in our right minds. And then I stuffed my face with more smoked salmon and then spent, <laughs> I think, the next couple of hours in the bathroom hurling salmon all night long. And then I couldn't eat salmon again for a year, which sucks because it's like one of my I know, favorite it's foods. amazing. <laughs> I remember some of that happening with like a Bloody Mary at one time in college, but you know, that's how it goes. Yeah. That's really funny. Uh, so anyways, the like... I think that, like, one of the reasons I have you here, too, is I can honestly say that we've both stayed true to being in fields of activism. So, Sabrina, can you share with listeners a little bit of your background in social justice and your current, like, position, what you're doing right now? Yeah. Um, so I think my social justice journey, it's kind of always been part of my life, right? It's always been part of my identity and my family and like the way that I was raised. But I think that it really started to become um, more concrete in how I should um, be engaging and like what my social responsibility is. Probably like many people in college is probably where it really started. And um, so I was involved with, you know, multiple clubs on campus that were doing different kinds of activism. Um, we were so close to the Canadian border and at that time um, under Bush, if you remember Bush no. one or two, yeah, Bush uh, <laughs> I guess we're not that old, <laughs> under Bush two, um, they were doing a lot of ice raids at the migrant camps. Yeah. And, um, and so I was working with like several organizations on campus that were trying to make sure that people knew what their rights were, that they didn't need to open their doors to ICE. Um, that they had phone numbers that they could call to be able to get legal services if they needed. And so um, I think that's probably where a lot of this journey really formally began. Um, I think that because I'm the child of an immigrant, my mother is from Mexico, as you know, um, and I identify as Chicana or Latina, then um, for me, I guess, you know, really making sure that um, I'm involved with social justice movements has always just been um, a part of my life. So I, you know, after college, I went um, and started working in social justice, but in Latin America, I worked in Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic uh, for, I think in both around eight years. And then I also did short gigs in other areas in Guatemala and India, um, Mexico, and always focused with um, or on social justice to some extent, and um, community development and community organizing. That's kind of where I felt my calling was. And after several years, I decided to come back to the United States. Um, 
I was ready. I'd been gone for about 10 years and um, maybe wanted a little bit of stability in my life. I was getting older. And um, so I started working for an organization that was a Jewish social justice organization that um, works with young people to really uh, kind of instill these social justice values into their work and into their life. Um, and so we talk about different social justice issues and you know equity and racism and classism and all these things um, while they're all working in direct service jobs um, in Washington, D.C. at the time. So I think that that definitely helped you know continue to solidify my interest and passion in social justice. And um, after working there for a few years, I was uh, wanting to go back to the international field. And so um, I ended up working back um, at a new organization still in Washington, D.C. that was focused on um, gender based violence. And um, my job in particular was to focus on, on GBV, but in uh, Latin America. And so I've been there for the last four years. Um, developing multiple programs in um, open and closed countries and addressing GBV in multiple different ways, um, working with multidisciplinary actors, um, you know, making sure that we're always working with civil society and centering civil society's needs first and foremost. Um, yeah, and that's kind of how I ended up oh, in this that's field. All, that's all you do. That's all I do. That's it's it. no big deal. <laughs> but I just, just because I think this is important too, and you mentioned this uh, kind of, ha but like, how do you identify? Because you mentioned that you work with Jewish organizations. Like, where do you fit in with like your identity? Like, how would you? Yeah, um, I identify as Jewish. I was raised Jewish. I am Jewish. Um, I'm also Mexican-American or Chicana. So I identify as Latina and Chicana. Um and and my pronouns are she her hers and i identify as a cis woman awesome thank you sabrina so well i invited you here because you've lived in many latin american countries um i almost said latin american countries i don't know what that means but uh and i was recently reading some articles out of the dr which is the dominican republic and you live there and other countries about the treatment of women, LGBTQ, and this word femicide kept coming up. And even though I've heard the word before, even from you, uh, I actually looked it up to make sure that I had the correct definition. Uh, and what I basically took away was that femicide, like the word might imply with the side and the femme, is that it's women being killed based on their gender. Now, you might have a a different definition but like is that correct or like how would you define femicide yeah i would identify it as women being killed on the base of their gender or gender gender identity as well so um for example trans femicide is also a huge issue in latin america um where the rates are just as high um or at least very high uh in several countries and these women are being killed also for their identity of being a trans woman and so um yeah i think it comes down to like gender identity so uh i'm gonna just kind of read some excerpts from the article i read and then ask you kind of like what your experience is working um i don't want to say working in femicide i don't know if that's the <laughs> right way to say it but latin american based like gender violence so for me, this all came from um, a couple articles. One was out of The Guardian that talks about the UK um, femicide, which in Europe you think, oh, it's so advanced, like they don't deal with femicide, but they do. And then also um, just mostly 
looking at an article from Amnesty International, and it begins with saying that in Santo Domingo, sorry if I like pronounce things wrong, that in 2021, 29 femicides were reported in DR, Dominican Republic, and Fondor, who is president of Life Without Violence Foundation, stated that 24 out of the 29 femicides that occurred in the first three months of 2021, so that's just like a quarter, like how we do in schools, were carried out by partners or former partners, um, leaving like 24 children orphaned, which sounds like a crazy amount for only a quarter. Uh, it also stated in this article that according to Fundacion Vida Sin Violencia, Life Without Violence, um, ending a toxic relationship constitutes a death sentence in these countries. Um, so she considers it, the president, necessary to promote a systemic campaign for the male population, reminding them that their partners deserve respect and they're not their property. Quote, although March is dedicated to women internationally, it's been a bloody month. And this, I mean, this is just so recently within uh, with 10 intimate femicides and one per like connection, uh, which I'm not exactly sure what that means. But systemic campaigns should be designed and implemented to make women aware of risk factors when this occurs, as well as other campaigns aimed at the male population, reminding them that their partner's deserve respect and are not an object of their property she pointed out so i'm just learning about this issue and then i'll kind of read something i learned in the guardian but for you like in the cases of femicide like what have you experienced like how why does this occur like in latin american countries or so i want to back up before actually answering that question or those questions um and being the good activists that we are, I am going to call you in on some of the assumptions I think that are have been made um, just about, you know, gender based violence and um, where it occurs and that kind of thing. So um, so it says something just about like being surprised that it occurred in places like the UK and in advanced countries. Um, like we have to remember that like these phenomenons occur like all over the world, not just in um, previously colonized countries, but also in places like the U.S., right? For and like sure. there's I think one of the things that's pretty amazing about Latin America is at the very least, you know, many countries in Latin America actually have laws against and penalizing femicide. Whereas the United States actually doesn't have a law that's specific about femicide. There's many countries that have observatories on gender-based violence and femicide in Mexico, in Honduras, in Spain, in Argentina, in, you know, all over El Salvador. There's all over Latin America. There's um, observatories that are tracking this, this data. And while the United States does track intimate partner violence and um, women killed by intimate partners, they don't necessarily call it fem femicide and they don't necessarily acknowledge it as femicide. So um, so in some ways, like, you know, those laws in, in Latin America and other places that aren't like as advanced are actually um, much more advanced than we are here in the no, United States. No, and I really appreciate you calling that out because I think it, like, honestly, it was a prejudice I had. Like when I read the article, I was thinking, because I had definitely initially got interested by looking at the DR and knowing you and like thinking about Latin American countries and I did I assumed like oh the UK or which 
like exactly what you pointed out. There's not laws and there's shit that happens under, you know, the surface that if you don't have any kind of like bills or anything that actually tracks that, then you're just, and you're just assuming it's an advanced country. They don't have, they don't deal with like issues of gender violence, which, so I appreciate you like calling that out. Of course. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Um, And so... Yeah, I think that um, so oftentimes what you find, like going back to what your question is about, like, what have I experienced? And also, like, why does it occur? So oftentimes, um, you know, just as the articles that you were reading, it occurs um, from toxic relationships. It's oftentimes from intimate partner violence. However, you had mentioned that there was one uh, case by relation, I think, in the DR. What that means is not someone that was necessarily in an intimate partner relationship. Um, with the the perpetrator of the violence, but that might have been like the sister or the mother or the best friend, something like that, that had also been killed as a result, um, essentially collateral damage, but because she was a woman, then that's also why she was killed. Um, there's actually a pretty famous case in um, Honduras where a beauty queen was um, killed by her partner and, um, and he had also harmed the sister um, trying to kill her as well because she was with her sister at the time. And so, um, so yeah, so there's a, a lot of, like, you. it's not uncommon to have, like, a femicide by relation that ne- wasn't necessarily in the um, intimate partner relationship. So, um, so it occurs, I think, uh, it's a result of a, a lot of different things. Um, machismo and um, toxic masculinity and, you know, some of the things that they were talking about with uh, recognizing or, or trying to consider women as property um, and trying to really like what it comes down to is like power and control, right? Like yeah. gender based violence comes down to power and control of one person, of the intimate partner oftentimes over someone else um, and trying to, you know, control what it is that they're doing, what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. And um, when their partner is violating that, then um, then they feel that they have been violated. The perpetrator feels like they have been violated. So I have a question for you. I'll kind of bring up what I read. This question just came to me. But like, so I read this article about, like I said, the UK, this like femicide epidemic, they called it, who's like killing our daughters. And then I also watched this documentary called the missing women of mexico it's really good um and it's about hundreds of mostly poor women who've gone missing in juarez and nothing has been done and they it sounded like the government tried to find a scapegoat for these missing women locked some dude up who was an egyptian chemist the femicides continued these missing women continued uh, and then many of the families believe that the police were corrupt um, and the government doesn't want to bring attention to that. And so some of the women even in this documentary talk about believing it was the army who was killing and kidnapping their loved ones. And even and some say in the film that they told the police and government that it was the military vehicles from the Mexican army that had taken them away. And so I just like. I don't want to pinpoint this on Latin American countries, but, like, obviously I, we have our own issues with police in our own country, but, like, have you, like, what's your kind of, like, how would you react to that if someone thought that it was maybe the police were not helping the situation? 
Yeah, <laughs> I would absolutely agree. I mean, I think, you know, just like everywhere, right? There's like um, people that are corrupt and there's people that aren't. But I think that there's other factors that can make it worse in Latin America. For example, you know, if a police is only making, you know, two or three hundred dollars a month to yeah. be able to feed their family, pay for their rent, all of that in a country where it costs, you know, like at least three hundred or four hundred dollars a month to be able to have a family just survive, right? Not even thrive, but just like live in a tiny room. Like, yeah, it's easy to be able to um, pay people off to ignore crimes that are occurring. And especially if, if someone has money or power or influence. Um, and, you know, in Mexico and in Juarez especially, I mean, the police certainly weren't doing anything to protect the women. A lot of them were women that were working in the maquilas, right? In the um, sweatshops on the border. And um, the police were not present. They weren't providing the safety that was required and, and asked for. I mean, it was demanded for by the communities, but um, but it was going completely ignored. And, you know, whether some of the police or military might have actually been perpetrators of this violence, like, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all, honestly, because it had also been occurring for so long. And um, it had... Since they couldn't find the one perpetrator, and I think that that was like another one of the mistakes, right? Like, I don't think that there actually was one perpetrator. Yeah. I think it was multiple perpetrators yeah. of this violence. Like, oftentimes it is the intimate partner that has killed um, his girlfriend or wife or whatever when she decides to leave him or if she doesn't want to be with him or whatnot. Um but it could have very well have been, you know, a stranger that was rejected by a woman um, or there's a lot, I guess, of different situations. It isn't always intimate partner violence. But um, yeah, I totally think that the police could have very much been part of it or the military. I like I really appreciate you saying that because like for so for one of the articles that I read was called uh, The Other Side of Juarez, like femicide. And it was it or sorry, the other side of the Suedad Juarez femicide story, and it was it was published by Harvard University, but one of the things that they say about writing it was so this is an excerpt that I'm gonna read, but it said situation and situated, sorry, and grounded at the border, we have attended events, conducted research, and participated in organized coalitions where the mothers of murdered daughters provided heart-wrenching testimonials, not only about the horrifying deaths, but also police impunity. Impunity is the code word for inept, the incompetent and or complicit law enforcement personnel and institutions at the municipal and state levels of the Mexican society. The Juarez authorities devoted little time investigating the crimes. They lost or misplaced reports and even bones of some of the victims. Alas, Ciudad Juarez is not the only place in Mexico with a broken and corrupt law enforcement system. Uh, our own country too. Whether people seek justice about femicide, homicide, domestic violence, theft, or general public security, their efforts are seldom rewarded. Most crimes go unpunished in Mexico. The failure has become the most important public issue in the country today. Like, I was just kind of wondering what your reaction to that is, because it it does feel like a lot of blame is being placed on the, you know, I mean, because that's where you go for help is you go for help from like police or you go help for help from your government but um yeah i kind of want to get into like whether this is like a cultural thing too or i don't know 
I didn't mean to say like I'll I'll kind of like elaborate on that, but you know. Yeah. So three percent of femicides ever get prosecuted. Okay. So femicide (laughs) has a very high impunity rate. Yeah. Yeah. So whether it's police or whoever, the impunity rate is really high. Um, There's like a lot of different issues of why femicides occur. Um, I mean, yes, some of it has to do with like completely inept police, right? But they're also inept for many reasons, right? They don't have the resources that they need. They don't have um, the tools that they need, right? Like when I was living in um, Nicaragua, I remember that the my house got robbed and um, my boyfriend at the time had wrestled the thief to the ground <laughs> and um, had him in some sort of like judo hold or something because he had studied judo. And to be able to go and get the police, I had to take my car to go to the police station, pick up the police bring them to my house so that they could arrest this guy who was actually a policeman who had been watching our house oh and knew God. that on Sundays we left the house for a few hours and we didn't have like a, a night watch person during the evening. So he knew when his prime time to come was. But I mean, the point is that if they don't even have the resources, like they don't have a motorcycle, they don't have a uh, vehicle to be able to get anywhere, then um, they're also, you know, struggling. So even like the good police, the ones that are really trying, that really care about gender-based violence, the ones, and I know some, like I've worked with some throughout Central America. I've worked with some in the Dominican Republic and you know, there's ones that really care and really want to be able to change the system. But even if they care so much, then you get to, so let's say that they collect all the evidence that they need. Then they take it to the prosecutor to be able to present the evidence. And then the prosecutor says like, oh, well, I don't think it's enough evidence. So like, we're not going to go forward with the case or, oh, well, you know, she was like, you know, kind of wearing a short skirt that night. Like, why was she out so late? Like, you know, she probably had it coming. So a lot of victim blaming, right? Um, And again, maybe they get to a really great prosecutor. But then the prosecutor takes the case to the judge. And then the judge, you know, decides to rule against the the survivor if it's a domestic violence case or some sort of gender-based violence case, right? So there's so many different levels. Um, And even in the United States, right, for someone to be able to prosecute um, you know, domestic violence case. Like, it's not something that just happens from one day to the next. This is something that takes months, sometimes even years of co- continuing court cases. And so people sometimes just want to be done with that. And if they're ready to leave and ready to leave the, the relationship and, you know, a, another statistic to throw out at you, it takes on average a survivor seven attempts to leave their abuser. And that's like, average right like um or like on the low end so oftentimes it might take 9 14 and many times people don't leave at all and so like the result of continued battery continued domestic violence continued um manipulation control if it continues to get worse is femicide yeah i'm so glad you like i learned so much from you because honestly it's that perspective i feel like from what i've read is not really taken into account is the especially from like the american point of view or more you know privileged point of view because some of the articles you read and stuff they don't put the police even in that socioeconomic class like Mm -hmm. you just did the resources even the you know um when you are 
unfortunately just like trying to struggle to survive like you are not putting someone else's life necessarily above yours when you're working this job where you're really just trying to provide for your family yeah and it's like you know and there's other dangers depending on the country that you're in so in the northern triangle for example in guatemala um, Honduras, El Salvador in particular, where there's quite a bit of gang violence. Um, and there's also in the Dominican Republic, but it's not like the specific gangs, right? Um, then there's also a whole nother level of risk. So if there is any kind of gender-based violence or even a femicide that has occurred um, to someone that was like a, a girlfriend, I say this in quotes because often they're forced to be girlfriends, they don't choose. Um, it, they're, they're coerced because they're threatened with, you know, someone hurting their family member or hurting them. And so they just agree. But if they are, um, killed by their partner, then the police won't investigate that case because they know that if they try to prosecute that gang member, then they could end up dead. Their family could end up dead. Their children could end up dead. And so there's this whole other, um, level of danger, right? So again, even if they have the best intentions, even if they, you know, want to do things right, they want to do the right thing. Um, there's actually, so I, I sometimes volunteer at a detention center um, in Virginia and where there's adult males that have um, been, well, they're slated, most of them to be deported back to their countries. But um, I work with them to be able to find out if they have the opportunity to give um, a credible fear interview. And there was actually someone that I had met that was the son of a policeman. And this policeman had tried to actually do the right thing, try to access justice for a survivor he was working with. And um, because it was gang affiliated, then they started harassing the family. Um, at one point, there was like the head of, I think it was like another family member was left on his doorstep. So he knew like, okay, you're next. And so he took his family and went to the United States. They escaped because he knew if he stayed in the country and his family stayed, yeah. they would be murdered and they would be slaughtered. Awful. Yeah. And so and so this his son was the one that actually ended up getting caught here in the United States. But he was so fearful of going back to the United States. I'm sorry, back to his country um, in Central America because he knew that if he went back, then he would be killed. And um, he never, you know, he left when he was three years old or four years old. So he spoke a little bit of Spanish, not that much. He was raised here. Yeah. Um, and he was being, you know, threatened to be sent back to a place that um, he could have probably died. I, that case actually had like a, not terrible ending because in the end he wasn't deported just because we did have enough evidence to demonstrate that if he went back to his country, he would probably be killed. But um, most people's cases don't result like that. Oh my God. That's awful. Like, so awful. But I, yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that other stuff because um, some of the other stuff like that I just read about and that's where I think one of the things is that this isn't just like Latin American countries, it's everywhere. Um, and and even honor killings. I don't know if you've heard about this, like if it's still a thing, but I'm going to read you this like excerpt. So uh, one of the things with femicide is, it's, I mean, it's not a huge portion of femicides. Um, a lot of them deal with like domestic abuse and like what you're talking about, just like those relationships and even can be like a family member. But um, uh they were talking about, uh, I, I want to like make sure I give 
the right credibility. I think this is from the Times, but it says murders in the name of honor. Related murders involve a girl or woman being killed by a male or female family member for an actual or assumed sexual or behavioral transgression, including adultery, sexual intercourse, or pregnancy outside of marriage, or even for being raped um, at times. So often the perpetrators, or sorry, perpetuators, perpetrators see this femicide as a way to protect family reputation, to follow tradition, or to adhere to wrongly interpreted religious demands. So murders in the name of honor may also be used to cover up um, cases of incest, and there are reports of people using the honor defense as a way to receive community and legal acceptance. So I, the only reason I would kind of bring this up, because like you were talking about, like the how many different things like come underneath this like femicide. This is one thing that also like seems to happen in some countries and, and can even happen in the United States. It doesn't happen like um, most outwardly, but I don't know. Have you ever heard of honor killings? Like, yeah, that's yeah. definitely within, um, I guess, the portfolio of work that my team and I work on. Oh, wow. And so, um, so we address honor killings in countries that practice those um, harmful practices and other kinds of harmful practices that impact women and girls. Um, and I mean, it's something that's still happening today, and it's not something that's, um, happens like not that frequently like it still happens frequently is what i'm saying yeah yeah it still happens in like maybe in particular i don't know countries or religious like sects or whatever um so it seems like that i've read though and uh i don't think this is particularly from like what you've kind of brought up um but like uh some would say, so I just want to hear your opinion, but like across Latin American and Caribbean, this is what I read, that gender-based violence is so widespread, it's like considered a human's right, human rights problem and like also like a public health challenge by global health organizations. So just like your reaction to that and then I'll kind of follow up with like a question about like what we could do or like what you've seen people do to kind of combat this femicides and like gender-based violence yeah um so i think it absolutely is a public health issue and so one of the the issues you know talking about culture and especially in latin america is that um and we see this in the u.s too but there's definitely there's a saying in spanish um trapos sucios se lavan en casa so your um dirty rags you wash at home right so just basically saying that like you know you don't you don't air your dirty laundry that's what the equivalent is right and so um i think like you know the part of the problem is not talking about it and so when it could so people might not even know when there is um you know gender-based violence happening in the household for example and so then once it gets starts to get to that point where it's almost um a femicide or could become a femicide people may not know or just might not talk about it and um so if it was treated as a public health issue something that affects all of us right and it does affect all of us like while um women and girls might be the immediate targets um and they might be like the immediate people that are you know that die 
Um, there's oftentimes children that die in these cases as well, right? That um, the perhaps the father that has been abusing his wife for all these years threatens to also hurt the children or actually does hurt the children as well. And um, they once again are some sort of collateral damage as a result of the, the femicide. Um, and so I think that if there was more efforts to try to sensitize and um, bring awareness to what gender-based violence looks like like from a young age and that's where you could start to maybe make some cultural shifts or cultural changes um yeah so like i have a question about that because i just reading and getting into this i'm wondering it seems like we call femicide femicide or this might be just like from my own research in certain countries or whatever but like you were saying in the united states of america like i've read and researched about domestic violence Mm -hmm. and shootings based on that men killing their wives or vice versa and we don't call it femicide or we don't call it like a gender-based no it's just homicide murder so why do you think that's so unique to some of these other countries that we call it what we, we do a gender with the homicide because like I guess I'm I kind of know what I'm getting at too is from what I've read and also watched like the movie I watched and stuff a lot of women in those countries believe it's like a cult like a cultural problem as well like the machismo or mm-hmm. like how society is built but like we also know that that exists like you pointed out in other countries as well but we definitely like you know femicide for me in my head is oh latin american countries or these other countries not the united states or europe um so it's a hard thing to like you know (laughs) contextualize yeah, yeah exactly for sure so Uh, Do you have any opinions on that or? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's easy, right? Like that's part of like colonialism and paternalism and um, the United States thinking that like we're the best, right? So that these things don't happen in this country. But like, you know, we have child marriage here in the United States. Girls as young as 11 years old can be married off to someone that is you know over the age of 18 with their parents permission that's still legal in the united states like you know things like um we were talking about harmful traditional practices or traditional practices right Mm -hmm. so such as female genital mutilation you think of that being a problem that happens in you know in other countries and other continents but that happens here in the united states too um you think about yeah femicide and how that's like a latin american kind of problem but like it happens here too we just don't call it that yeah and in a country with like the you know we have such high murder rates we have such high death rates of people like dying from you know not natural causes yeah. here like um it's just a way of kind of making it seem like it's a brown person's problem or like it's a um like previously colonized countries problem so it's not our problem but that just comes down to like racism basically and like um yeah paternalism and colonialism and just like where you get your media from i mean Mm -hmm. honestly this conversation is not where i was thinking i was gonna go because a lot of what i was reading the headlines were oh latin america femicide Mm -hmm. or even so one of the things that i read which i believe 
But this is also something I could see happening here in the United States was just, you know, for coming out of the Dominican Republic was the, the title was, well, like, if they can have her, why can't we? And I'm going to read you the excerpt because mm -hmm. I, I just, like, think this is interesting. But this was, like, how they start this whole, basically, statistics, data about femicide happening in the DR is looking at how police were like, well, if she's been, you know, a sex worker, then she obviously is up for grabs. So what I'm about to read is a excerpt from a woman who experienced violence from um, some police officers. So in the small offices of Otrosex, a sex worker-led non-governmental governmental organization NGO in the Dominican Republic a cisgender woman told Amnesty International she was raped late one night in October 2017 on a dark street corner in the back of a police vehicle. There were three of them I was in a corner waiting for clients and they abused me she said they pulled me onto the police van they saw that the area was empty they started to grope me, take off my clothes, they ripped my blouse one after the other. I'm the first one said, so one of the police officers said, and the other waited his turn. From then on, they mistreated me. They forced me to do something I didn't want to do. I was afraid. I was alone. I couldn't defend myself. I had to let them do what they wanted with me. They threatened to me. They threatened me that if I wasn't with them, they would kill me. They said that I was a whore, and so why not with them? They called me a bitch and used many offensive words. They saw me, I guess, as they thought, well, if they the clients can have her, then why can't we? So after reading that and then just like reading the statistics about the DR, but like just that little excerpt, I don't think, especially after our conversation, is necessarily unique to the DR, but unique to a mentality that some grow up with, like, in whatever family, household, country, or environment of, well, this, like, sex worker is not a person, or this this woman is disposable. So it's not really, like, there's no problem with mistre the mistreatment or just, like, disposing of them, basically, or treating them how you want. So, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts after that, like, horrible excerpt? Yeah. Um, you, yeah, hit the nail on the head. Uh, it's about, like, seeing sex workers and other women that work in sex work as disposable and that they aren't full humans and therefore they can be used and abused in the way that people want. And you're right. We see this, you know, in Dominican Republic, that was her story of what happened to her. But we see that all around the, the world, including the U.S. Um, and... You know, I think that this comes down, again, still to, like, power and control, right? So, and so socioeconomic class, too. For, like, some reason, that always, like, keeps coming back to me. Like, poor women are just, like, disposable. And poor people in general, but, like, And people women. of color, right? Like, I think, yeah. like, one of the things we haven't touched on yet was, like, you know, thinking about this also in, with an intersectional lens. Because yeah. when we're talking about femicide, like, it's... Yes, all women can be uh, could be a victim to femicide um, because gender-based violence, you know, it doesn't see class, it doesn't see race, it like it could happen to anyone, right? But um, women of color, in particular, 
um, trans women, especially like trans women of color can be especially vulnerabilized because of the fact um, that they are seen by society as disposable. And so, um, so this woman that was, you know, attacked by the police, like she's right. She was seen as, um, you know, something, an object to be had and not, was not seen as human. She wasn't seen as a sister, as a mother, as a daughter, yeah. as a woman. Right. And, um, and I think that that also goes a lot to like how people see sex workers and sex work. That's not like a dignified work. And, um, you know, women especially will do whatever it takes to make sure that they can survive and that their children can survive and that their families will survive. Um, oftentimes women are even like sold into trafficking by their mothers. Yeah. I knew a case actually in the Dominican Republic where a mother had sold her daughter um, to a man uh, when she was 13 years old because he was an American man. There's quite a lot of sex tourism actually for, of Americans um, going to the Dominican Republic to look for young women to um, be sexually active with and and rape really because they're all minors and um this woman you know gave her daughter knowing full well what the daughter was going to be expecting and did so without a problem because it meant that she got money for it right so like um so she's not an example of like a mother that will do anything for her daughter and ch children to survive survive right because she gave away her her daughter to be raped but um, oftentimes, you know, if there's a sex worker, like, you know, you have to understand or also ask the question, like, you know, what are the conditions, like you said, like the socioeconomic conditions um, that have resulted uh, in in this and even ones that, you know, choose to do this, like that's totally fine and that, like all the power to you because like that's your choice. But um, I think that that comes down again to like men's control over women because um, they're making a choice that, like, the men like doesn't that approve power of. Thing, yeah. yeah. I think, you, well, because, like, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about things that I've read. And that's why I so appreciate you having here, because you bring up the intersectionality and race and other things that, like, me sitting here as a white woman, like, reading this shit, like, I'm not always thinking about these, even though I think of myself as, like, someone who tries or, um, you know... Uh, tries to think about different perspectives and through different lenses, but, like, the dowry, like, mm -hmm. you know, selling someone for a dowry, that still happens, too. Uh, and it's hard sometimes to, like, um, you know, give an opinion on a culture or perspective that you don't know, but, like, there's been killings or dowry killings because, like, someone didn't get what they thought they were paid, so they'll kill the person, the woman or whatever. Uh, but I think that it is, like, what you are saying, it's, like, a position of power and then, like, those intersectionalities of socioeconomic class, race, like, so I appreciate you bringing that up. So, Sabrina, not to put you on, like, the spot again <laughs> um because this is like definitely a, a tough topic and feels like overwhelming in a sense but um also because you know that it connects to not just like you're saying i keep bringing up other countries but definitely something we have here but like i know that you're probably more well informed than i am like what do you think that like people could do to help um or just be more conscientious about things that are happening about gender-based violence in, in our own country and other countries. Like, Yeah. 
Well, I think part of it is definitely learning about it, right? And learning what it looks like and the different forms that it takes, right? There's gender-based violence is a lot of different things. There's psychological violence that occurs, right? Um, there's physical violence, there's sexual violence, there's economic violence, right? Like not allowing a woman to work and oh, yeah. um, not giving her money to be able to like do things with her life, right? So there's many forms of gender-based violence that occur. So being um, reading about them, learning about them so that you can be a little bit more conscientious of what they look like. And so that also when it's happening, um, or even if it's happening to you or someone that you know, then you know how to be able to recognize that this isn't this is happening and that this is not okay. Um, because, you know, especially with the cycle of violence, like how things happen is, you know, things are every everything is really nice at the beginning, everything's calm, everything's great. Then some sort of transgression occurs, some sort of violence. Um, and then, you know, the cycle goes back to everything being calm again and fine and like I'm so sorry and like it'll it'll never happen again. But um, for Which example, sounds just like domestic abuse. It, that's it, exactly it what end, it is. And it right? ends like here we call it domestic abuse, and it ends often sometimes in killing. And so right, exactly. And like there's like different lethality factors, right? So you can look at so for example, if a woman tries to leave her abuser, um, that's something that increases her lethality factor. I mean, there it could be a potential femicide, for example, um, or telling you know making a police report on what occurred. That could be a potential threat like that could end up killing her right so there's so i think that like one of the other things that can happen um and this wouldn't necessarily be for you know the average bystander or whatever but um you know if there is more education and um support to like civil society organizations that are providing services to survivors of gender-based violence before they become victims, before they become, you know, a victim of femicide. Um, if they have the support that they need, the structures that they need, the networks that they need, then they might actually be able to give survivors more um, support before they end up being a femicide. Um, something that has worked really well here in the United States, but also in other countries, is a coordinated community response. So what that means is that police are working together with prosecutors, with civil society organizations. And so, you know, all these different community partners, instead of trying to do it all themselves, they know that, you know, so, so for example, like a police maybe gets a call about a domestic violence situation. He sees that perhaps um, the lethality factor for this woman could be that, uh, you know, if she's trying to leave her partner, she could end up dead. Then he knows, oh, I need to call this organization and um, to see if they can help intervene. Maybe I can support her by offering to take her to make the police report. Maybe I can take her over to the domestic violence shelter. Like, um, But if he's connected or she's connected, the police person is connected with the different services that exist and those services are well-funded and well-resourced, then um, you know that's a possibility to, from turning a, what could be potentially a femicide into um, you know, a survivor or even, in Spanish there's a great word, uh, that kind of talks about like the spectrum of going from victim, right? You're currently experiencing the the violence to survivor where you have surpassed the violence um, and you are like, you know, on your way towards empowerment. And then um, in Spanish, superviviente, which is like super survivor kind of, 
Um, this is like the point where you are, you know, an advocate. You're the one that's trying to maybe share your story so that others don't um, have to experience the same thing that you do. Or you're working and volunteering um, maybe at like a DV shelter or something like that. But, you know, there's lots of different ways that survivor advocates exist, right? They don't need to exist in the same type of way. But, um, but I think it's really beautiful that like language and Spanish that also termed or keyed the term feminicidio, femicide, um, that they also have a term for when someone has gone um, beyond just surviving, but that they're thriving, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that there's like a lot of different pieces, but that there needs to also be like, um, like in Spanish we say like ganas, like there needs to be like... Um, a desire yeah. for government structures, for institutions, um, and also culturally, right? There needs to be a cultural desire for things to change. Yeah. And so, so whether we're talking about machismo in Latin America or even machismo here in the United States, right? Of like where women belong and what women should be doing. Um, if we start to challenge those gender assumptions and we start to challenge what, um, what the expectations perhaps are for for women and what our role is and who we belong to but that rather like you know we belong to ourselves and that we don't we're not an object to be owned um then maybe things will start to shift to some extent but there needs to be you know there needs to be an emphasis and accountability towards government and government structures because if there isn't then that's what allows the impunity to continue um that's what allows the violence to continue with, you know, again, only 3% of femicide cases get um, prosecuted. When you're looking at um, gender-based violence generally, I mean, the impunity is really high. It depends from country to country. Um, In Honduras, for example, where I worked for many years, the impunity rate for gender-based violence cases generally is 93%. Oh my God. So meaning only 7% of even like domestic violence cases, even without, you know, woman completely battered, um, and you know bruises and and those are just the macheted. ones that like come to some sort of law enforcement right and they exactly don't, right like all the exactly. other ones that don't even come right so those aren't even law. counted this is only yeah. the ones that are reported right yeah. that came from a police report so and if you think about so the impunity rate is even higher than like what we have yeah. I mean so like there's a statistic one in three women will experience violence in their lifetime. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be gender-based violence, but that they will experience some kind of violence. Yeah. And um, and many times it ends up being um, gender-based violence. I think it's one in five that will experience GBV of some Ooh. sort. Oh, my God. Well, you're amazing. <laughs> like, I learned so much from this conversation. I'm so excited to have you back. It might have to be via Skype, but hopefully we'll have you back in Seattle. Uh, Sabrina lives in D.C. usually, so she's here on vacation to visit family and friends. But I'm so glad that you came. Uh, and then I just want to say, like, I was looking up while Sabrina was talking because I think this is important. I didn't really know. But if you are someone looking for, like, very local, there's the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence that you can reach out to. And I think that Sabrina brought up a really good point, which is putting pressure on, you know, um, our uh, officials, our legislators, and obviously, like, police and stuff to have those, like, kind of that community and outreach together and working together to, like, end these things, which I think just happens by people, uh, you know, Uh, pressuring them to do so so anyways there are local domestic violence support organizations across washington state 
And you could go to, it's like WSCADV.org if you're looking to like find out more about them. Um, I feel very privileged that I haven't had to deal with this issue, but I know people that have, and obviously Sabrina works in that field, so she has um, a lot more experience and knowledge than I do. So thank you again, Sabrina, for being on Lens Fuzz. <laughs> You're very welcome. Happy to be here. I also want to make sure that everybody knows that there's also national hotlines in case you're not dom yes. domestic here in Washington. So there's the um, National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Um, there's a National Center on Domestic and Sexual Violence. There's the National Domestic Violence Hotline. So there's multiple numbers that you can call if you or someone you know is experiencing this. And, um, you know, trying to make sure that you're having a relationship with, with this person, maintaining that relationship with them um, and supporting them to try and get help of some of some sort is really important. So um, look up those numbers. For sure. Oh, my gosh. Are you ready to have a fan blown on you or go outside? I can't wait. It's so hot in here. It reminds me of living in the Dominican Republic, especially since I didn't have air conditioning there either. Well, on that note, let's go outside. Thank you again, Sabrina and listeners. I hope to have a new episode out next week. So until then. <laughs>